Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is October 20th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I Ain't Missing You, a spinal epidural abscess. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Kirsty Chowan. She's a consultant in emergency medicine at Lancaster Teaching Hospital. Welcome back to the SGM, Kirsty. Hey, Ken. How are you? Oh, I'm great. It sounds like you are in this like really high ceiling. Like, are you in some fancy United Kingdom like uh, cathedral or something while you're recording this episode? I wish I'm in a meeting room at one of our hospitals. Oh, so it's a hospital. So this is part of the NHS, the National Health Services. Yes, correct. Don't get me started on politics. It's too early. Oh, really? I was going to ask you, how are things going? I hear, uh, you know, some junior doctors are striking, some other people are striking, but uh, you don't want to get into that today? Ah, uh, Well, the, the doctors' union has just reopened negotiations with the government, so we're all going to be optimistic for a little bit. Oh, okay. So I won't poke that nerve too much. Why don't you just give us a case and we'll get rolling on today's episode. Okay. Our case. You are in your group meeting and have heard about a case at a nearby emergency department where diagnosis of a spinal epidural abscess was delayed and the substantial settlement has been made out of court. Your group director's concerned to avoid the same thing happening in your department and wants to know if you should implement an evidence-based clinical management tool to reduce delays in diagnosis. Well, spinal epidural abscesses, or SEA, is one of those diagnoses which, which can seem really easy in retrospect. I mean, the majority of the time, and what I mean by majority is like 55% of the time, the diagnosis of SEA often involves an error with a median length of time to diagnosis of 12 days, so almost two weeks, and that was published in one study. Now, diagnostic delays were found to be present in three quarters of SEA patients, with only a minority, like 10 to 15% of patients, presenting with that classic triad. They had a fever, they had back pain, and a neurologic deficit. Now, another study reported that 90% of patients were misdiagnosed on their first ED visit likely due to the nonspecific and variable initial presentation and a number of patients with back pain of benign origin being seen in our emergency departments. So SEA is the condition with proportionately the highest misdiagnosis rate in ED per a recent systematic review and long-term sequelae for patients, and therefore the associated medico-legal costs, are high. However, there is a need for clinicians not to let SEA become the next, say, pulmonary embolism with high rates of over-investigation. Yeah, and we've looked at back pain multiple times on the SGM. It is a really common presentation. Now, usually we're looking at it in terms of treatment. So on episode 366, we concluded that we could not recommend routine use of skeletal muscle relaxants. And then at episode 304, we agreed that, you know, adding acetaminophen to ibuprofen really didn't seem to add much to the one-week outcome. And then there was SGEM-173, and it concluded the same about adding diazepam. I'm sensing a theme here. I think there may be a theme. We've also had a theme of looking at the rational use of imaging 
So SGEM 283, we looked at the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule. It's highly sensitive, but has very poor specificity. SGEM 181, we weren't convinced of the value of routine whole body CT in trauma patients. And right back to 2015, SGEM 106, we discussed the Canadian CT head rule and the New Orleans criteria for CT brain in trauma. However, we've not previously looked at that intersection of non-traumatic back pain and rational investigation. So, Kirsty, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's episode? The clinical question is, does implementation of a clinical management tool improve time to diagnosis and change testing rates for spinal epidural abscess? And the reference? Kai et al., Implementation of a Clinical Management Tool for Spinal Epidural Abscess Early Diagnosis, and that's Academic Emergency Medicine, October 2023. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So Academic Emergency Medicine and an October publication date? That means it has to be a hot off the press episode. Yay. All right, Kirsty, let's run through the PCOT. What's the population? Adult attendances at continuously staffed EDs in a health network covering 15 U.S. states from 2016 to 2019. Hey, wait a minute. Was that a little dig? Continuously staffed ED? I know I've been posting a lot on the site formerly known as Twitter about a number of staffing issues resulting in closures of rural emergency departments. So were you trying to like just poke me there with the continuously staffed comment? Uh, Given that I work in a pair of hospitals where one of our ERs is only open 12 hours a day, I don't think I've got much scope to do that. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Well, they excluded facilities that weren't collecting radiology or lab order data, facilities without that six month of data before or after the intervention. Speaking of intervention, what was it? It was implementation of a literature-based clinical management tool. And I'm going to stress the tool because as regular SGEM listeners will know, we prefer tools to rules. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't call it a rule. I hope um, some people in Ottawa are listening. Um, But yeah, it was a clinical management tool. Now, I think we're going to have to dig into that a little further down the line. But let's go to the outcomes. What was the primary outcomes? Primary outcome number one was the proportion of patients with spinal epidural abscess with a potentially related visit in the previous 30 days. Primary outcome number two, for those who'd had a prior visit the number of days from the first visit to diagnosis. Yeah, and we just record the audio, so people can't see my video reaction as I have a seizure to multiple primary outcomes. But that's an issue for me. All right, so um, how about the secondary outcomes? Utilization rates for CT, MRI scanning, X-ray, and the blood tests, ESR and CRP. And then the T of the PCOT, what was the type of study? It's an implementation study. All right, and we already did mention that this is an SGEM hot off the press. So we're pleased to have the lead author on the show, Dr. Angela Kai. She's a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She completed this work during her innovation fellowship at U.S. Acute Care Solutions. Now, prior to that, she trained at Kings County EM Residency in Brooklyn, 
New York, and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill for her medical and business degree. Welcome to the SGEM, Angela. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, we get the authors of the study to read their actual conclusions right up front so we know what they found. So what were your conclusions to this study that you just published in Academic Emergency Medicine? The back pain clinical management tool implementation was associated with an increased rate of recommended imaging and laboratory testing in back pain. There was no associated reduction in the proportion of SEA cases with a related prior visit or time to SEA diagnosis. Now, I called you up in advance just to give you a warning, you know, with this invitation that we're going to want to talk nerdy to you. Are you ready to talk nerdy later in this episode? Ready to talk nerdy. Yes. You need to get a pair of glasses with some tape in the middle there, though, I think, just to really, really bring that nerdiness up front. So Kirsty and I will go through a quality checklist and then just talk about uh, the key results, and then we'll bring you back to talk nerdy. Okay, Angela? Sounds great. All right. So Kirsty, let's go through that quality checklist for observational cohort studies. Do you think the study addressed a clearly focused issue? Yes, I do. And how about the methods? Did they use correct methods to answer the question they had? Yes, within the limits of observational studies. And how was the recruitment? Was it done acceptably? It was. And do you think they accurately measured their outcome to minimize bias? Probably. It's dependent on diagnostic coding, but they have that done by coding specialists. All right. And was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Probably, yeah. Same thing again. Probables. All right. Uh, Number six, the authors, did they identify all important confounding factors? No, and that's something we'll come back to when we get to talking nerdy. I love talking nerdy. Okay, was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yeah, it was. How precise are the results? So the confidence intervals are relatively broad. They're from minus 4.5 to plus 6% for the change in primary outcome. Do you believe the results? I do. Do you think those results that they published can be applied to your local population? To mine? With daily on-site access to an MRI scanner, yes. To yours? Maybe no. Yeah, no. Sometimes uh, I work at sites that don't even have CAT scans, or at least the only CAT scans I can get have four legs. So, yeah, we don't have advanced imaging in a lot of the uh, critical access hospitals. Um, Do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? No, they don't. The previous single-site studies have reported much bigger changes in outcome. And the final question, where did the funding come from? So there's no funding source reported. Uh, One author has reported payments from three companies for work unrelated to this. All right, let's dig into their results. There were over eight million ED visits from 59 emergency departments over a three-year time period. So this is a big database that they're going through. One in 20 or over 300,000 of those visits were for back pain. And that makes sense. I mean, I go into a shift, I, I see back pain quite regularly. So one out of every 20 patients seems quite reasonable. Now, the percent of back pain visits stayed about the same both before and after this CMT was introduced, so around 5%. However, the percentage of total ED patients diagnosed with spinal epidural abscesses increased from 0.006% to 0.009% 
after the introduction of this tool. And the percentage of the back pain patients diagnosed with spinal epidural abscesses also increased from 0.13% to 0.19%. But I've given you a lot of numbers. Hey, Kirsty, why don't you just give us the key result with no numbers in it? The key result, the implementation of a clinical management tool for spinal epidural abscess change processes, but not outcomes. Okay, let's get back to a little bit of the numbers now. So for that primary outcomes, what was their first primary outcome result? Oh boy, Angela's going to be mad at me when she gets on here and talks nerdy. Okay, what was the first one? The first primary outcome. The proportion of patients with spinal epidural abscess with a potentially related visit in the previous 30 days was 12.2% versus 13.3%, which gives you a difference of 1% with a 95% confidence interval of minus 4.5 to positive 6.5%. So we can say that there was no statistical difference and it looks like it's pretty, pretty evenly spread around that point estimate with no statistical difference. And how about that second primary outcome? So the second primary outcome for those patients who'd had a prior visit, the number of days from the first visit to the diagnosis, went from 15.2 days to 11.9 days, which is a difference of a reduction in 3.3 days. But again, those confidence intervals from minus 7.1 to positive 0.6. Yeah, and they're very similar to that other study we talked about in the background information of about 12 days or two weeks to make the diagnosis. All right, how about um, the secondary outcomes? Rates of CT, MRI scanning, ESR, and CRP testing rose, but the rate of spine x-rays fell. Okay, it's time to talk nerdy, and I know the S-Gemmers love listening to this section. So we're going to ask Angela our five nerdy questions and ask her to respond to those questions. So the obvious first nerdy question I have is, what is this clinical management tool? I like to see a flow sheet, a protocol, some kind of infographic that helps me figure out what this clinical management tool is. I searched your article. I searched uh, for supplemental material. Uh, I went out to Dr. Google and searched. Couldn't find it. So Angela, please take us through this clinical management tool that helped you risk stratify patients. Absolutely, Ken. The clinical management tool, or CMT for short, helps you risk stratify patients into three risk tiers. So it's based off of literature review of things that we all know are risk factors for spinal epidural abscess. And in short, the more risk factors you have, um, the higher your risk tier. So for history of present illness, some of the factors include recent or current systemic infection, incontinence or retention, night pain, and a third visit for any reason to the emergency department in 20 days. In terms of medical history, we look at alcohol use, intravenous drug use, diabetes, immunosuppression, recent spinal fracture or instrumentation, renal failure, and the presence of an indwelling catheter. And finally, we have to incorporate the physical exam into the risk stratification, looking for fever without a clear focus or an abnormal exam. So it recommends diagnostic testing based on these three risk tiers. So if you are a low-risk patient 
with a normal exam, then the CMT says you can consider avoiding MRI and other imaging as well. If you have at least two risk factors and an equivocal exam or a sensory deficit only, then you can be screened with inflammatory markers, ESR, CRP, depending on what's available at your site. In the highest risk tier, if you have an abnormal exam, you go straight to an MRI. There are two really important things about the clinical management tool. It tells you when to not image as well as how to go straight to the proper imaging. So there's no temptation to use CTs or x-rays, which are not going to be adequate to diagnose our high-risk diagnosis of interest, being the spinal epidural abscess. And then the direction on the high end of the spectrum to obtain an MRI is important because we know that is the most sensitive and diagnostically accurate test for this diagnosis. And ESRCRP, not sure what the practice at your site is, but I think that this is still um, being picked up within routine practice as a screening tool for spinal epidural abscess. So that's another useful part of this tool to be able to implement that at the bedside. Well, we don't have ESR anymore at my sites that I work at. um, So it would be a CRP, but I do have a follow-up question. Is this tool embedded into your electronic medical record? Does it come up and prompt the physician or is this something that they have to actively go out and search for? That's a great question. It is something that you have to look for. You know, it can be posted. There are multiple CMTs for different high-risk diagnoses. Um, They could be posted around the site depending on, you know, how your site uses a CMT. However, the way that it's uniform is that, you know, everyone uses the same learning management system and has to go through the same orientation. And this is embedded as part of the clinician orientation for the group. Not during the time of this study, but now at USACS, they do have an app that makes it easier for these to pull up on shift, or you can go onto the website on the desktop, um, but it's not fully incorporated into the EMR. It seems like a really good opportunity to use electronic charting for this kind of thing, because if this is one of the most, or if not the most misdiagnosis, you know, as you're collecting your history, your physical ordering investigations, maybe some of the investigations are coming back for a CRP, it could prompt you as opposed to trying to pull it, it could push it into your face and say, hey, it looks like you might be considering a spinal epidural abscess um, and then bring up that protocol or that tool for you. Uh, We get sepsis alerts based on somebody's, you know, heart rate, you know, for a sprained ankle, it seems. Um, it, It might be nice to have something that could sort of work the patient up with you as some kind of digital assistance. I don't want to say artificial intelligence because as soon as I say artificial intelligence, I've got to think of, yeah, it has to overcome natural stupidity. But if this could just, you know, like start to work through the case with me and say, hey, you know, from what you're documenting in your history, because we're documenting history or based on this patient's previous uh, documented risk factors, or it looks like you've got a CRP that's elevated. Hey, you know, their chief complaint was back pain. Have you considered a spinal epidural abscess. And here's our recent clinical decision management tool that's evidence-based. Yeah, there are definitely opportunities to incorporate this into the EMR. Um, Of course, you'd have to work with your EMR system to do that. At the site where I worked, they did try to make it easier to access these by creating macros that would pull in the flow chart and also 
sort of had wild cards where you could fill in the risk and reference the calculation. Of course, you still have to think about using it, so it doesn't give you that automatic prompt based on the chief complaint, but it at least makes it easier to access the information within the EMR. Well, thanks. That's helpful. We don't want to have too many prompts and pop-ups. Absolutely. Because of course, you know, we'll get into alarm fatigue or the signal to noise ratio. But this looks like where we could definitely make some improvements from, you know, dropping the miss rate down and also the delay to diagnosis rate down from uh, that two weeks time period. Yeah, thanks, Angela. That's that's really helpful to know. The thing I am fangirling on is that, that your management tool helps you avoid imaging. And we are not going to end up with whole spine MRIs being the CTPA of the next decade. Absolutely. I'm with you there. Moving on to nerdy point number two, and that's around your, your study design. You perform this as a retrospective implementation study. Rather than using an experimental design, like maybe a cluster randomized trial, could you talk us through the reasoning behind that? Sure. That was a pretty practical decision. This implementation occurred in 2017, and the idea for this study happened in 2021. So by that time, we had a lot of great retrospective observational data, but the CMT had already been incorporated into all the sites. Um, So this retrospective design was the most practicable and accessible format to study. That sounds cool, but I guess it will at least give you information and guidance when you're thinking of developing and implementing a CMT for maybe other diagnoses of concern. For sure. That's a great thought. Yeah, it would be be nice if uh, before implementing the CMT, which is supposed to be evidence-based, to actually see if it works. And a cluster randomization trial design would be an excellent sort of thing, especially with the acute care solution network of hospitals. You could really, uh, you know, link all that data together and have different clusters implementing it at different time frames. Uh, and, and it really represents an opportunity to mine that sort of database of information that your uh, network of hospitals or organization could do. Yeah, there's a ton of opportunity with USACS data. So I think that's a great point um, to think about ahead of time, how we can study things in more experimental design. All right, nerdy point number three, we mentioned this a little bit in the quality checklist, and this was about confounders or confounding factors. You explored changes in gender and age distribution across the implementation period but you haven't presented data on other potentially relevant factors. One of them I remember listening to you talk about this CMT was, you know, IV drug use or injection drug use, or perhaps pre-presentation opioid prescriptions. Would you have liked to have explored these factors too, or did you and just not publish that data perhaps? Because I think they may have affected your outcomes. Yeah, I think you've identified the one confounder that we didn't explore that is a huge uh, underlying confounder, which is IV drug use. We would have loved to have studied that. It wasn't available in the data set we have, which is mostly a billing data set. Um, However, we know during this study period that IV uh, drug use has increased along with the opioid epidemic. So that's something that we didn't control for specifically. We did try to look at concurring testing patterns during this period. But again, like you said, we haven't controlled for everything. And nor can you control for everything in an observational data. And 
it's it's difficult and it's challenging. And I don't want you to think any of these questions are sort of being negative. We're just trying to explore and understand your data set even better. So we appreciate the answers that you're giving. Sometimes people can uh, think that being skeptical um, is really being, you know, critical. And it's not critical. It's just critically evaluating the data and trying to put it in perspective. So that's great. Yeah. And I think, you know, raising the point about the confounder is important because although we saw the increased rate of SEAs being diagnosed, we'll never know if that was due to underlying comorbidities of the population increasing and specifically IV drug use. Um, We don't know what the right amount of testing is for ESR, CRP, or MRIs for SEA. We do know, of course, that the rate of diagnosis increased, and we hope that it was because of the process changes that we saw. Thanks. That's really helpful. In terms of exploring and understanding what you guys did, uh, nerdy point number four, you developed a consensus list for patients who'd been seen in the ER in the 30 days before their diagnosis and whether that attendance had been maybe related to it. And I was interested to see that none of the potentially related diagnoses you had in that list reflected non-specific viral myalgic feel a bit unwell hurt all over type syndromes. Um, Was that a deliberate choice? The potentially related diagnoses was a list uh, compiled by the physician authors of the paper. What we did is we looked at all of the diagnoses for prior visits for everyone that had been diagnosed with an SEA, and we generated a list of what the prior visit diagnoses were, and we kind of came to a consensus on each diagnosis uh, based on whether we thought it could be related. Certainly, this is very limited as we're just looking at coding data. So we did try to be broad and include things like extremity pain. But for your specific question, in terms of viral infection, for those patients that had prior visits, there were patients that did have viral infection unspecified and myalgia unspecified. And we did decide to exclude those In total, there were two patients that had a prior visit with viral infection unspecified and one prior visit with myalgia unspecified, although we didn't specifically factor in the number of visits for including the diagnoses. We just kind of looked at whether we thought clinically the diagnosis could have been relevant. Sure, that makes complete sense in the context of this when we know that SEA is such a nebulous early presentation. It's, I think that's a really hard call to make. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you did it with a consensus group is probably the way I'd have chosen to do it as well. Thanks. That's really helpful. Absolutely. So we started these five nerdy questions with a very simple one. Hey, what's the clinical management tool? And you walked us through that. Now I'm going to end with the fifth question. And this is, this is the big one. So what? I mean, you found that, you know, using this CMT, this tool that was recommended to be used, was used, Um, but you didn't change the delay in diagnosis. So I want to say the million dollar question, but this kind of ties into the keener question, the multi-million dollar question 
is did you really need a CMT if it didn't have a clinical impact? Absolutely. I think the CMT is a really empowering tool to help us avoid low-yield imaging and, and also risk stratify patients with evidence-based criteria. We know that medical knowledge is expanding vastly, so to be able to bring the latest literature in terms of remembering all of the risk factors and what the best imaging modality is at the bedside, I think can be really powerful. So if even though we were only able to show that we were changing processes, the ability to change processes over thousands of clinicians and patient visits could be really powerful. And perhaps we haven't gotten to the point where we're seeing that change patient outcomes. And hopefully if we continue to study that, we will see that. But just to give an example of the impact that we could have, let's say you have 200,000 back pain visits, which is about what we saw pre and post intervention. If you just change behavior in 1% of the, those visits, that can be really powerful. So let's say you change 1% across 200,000 visits. So that's about 2,000 patients that may have received additional testing or lack of testing as advised by the CMT. The issue is SEA is such a low prevalence disease that even in the most optimistic scenario, you might say that we, one in every 587 back pain visits that we diagnose an additional SEA. And that might amount to earlier diagnosis and maybe three patients. So on one hand, you can say we haven't done a lot, but on the other hand, we can say this is a really high risk diagnosis and also causes a lot of morbidity and mortality in patients. So in that way, I think that the CMT can be really empowering and that the process change can be meaningful, even if we haven't been able to measure it on the patient outcomes. Not only can this help us practice evidence-based medicine, it could be medical legally protective. So just anecdotally for USACS's experience using this CMT, we found that there's a meaningful effect that was outside the scope of this study. Lawsuits and potentially preventable bad outcomes occurred only when the CMT was not used, and hopefully this is a promising pattern that could show that RCMT could avoid lawsuits and bad outcomes. Well, I don't want you to get the impression from my question that I interpret this as you didn't do anything. Oh, I don't feel that way at all. I'm just answering your question. <laughs> I, I thought that was a fantastic answer, by the way. Uh, you know, it was it was to prompt you. It was to poke you a bit to say the so what question. And you answered that so well. But certainly, uh, I don't want you to have the impression that I think you didn't do anything. Uh, this, the data is what it is. And you asked an important question, used methodology that could answer associations in a before and after study design. You recognized the confounders and you explained your results and you got it published. You need to be congratulated. That's why we do these hot off the presses and get the authors on board to give us a deeper understanding. Oh, no, absolutely. I don't feel, I don't feel um, like that you're criticizing me at all, really. I think oh, the fact that you've chosen our study is really just a test. Te I don't think you pick bad studies. So yeah, and, um, hopefully. Well, and, and <laughs> the, you know, to do this and to do critical appraisal, you touched on, you know, a couple of very important points. One is that we promote evidence-based medicine and evidence-based medicine involves the literature. That's an, a very important part of it. But then we need to use our clinical judgment and you're a clinician and you see these patients and you know how you can implement that and use your clinical decision-making uh, power with this tool to augment your clinical decisions. And then, of course, engage with patients and ask about their values and preferences. And the other big thing is knowledge translation. I mean, that's the holy grail. How do you change yeah. physicians' or clinicians' practice? 
it is really hard to do. And it's also really hard to show that you've done it. And that's why, you know, it can take over 10 years for high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside. So you're using that U.S. acute care solution database to try to generate some good information to help clinicians and change practice so patients get the best care based on the best evidence. So well done. I'm glad <laughs> glad you think so. It's been a privilege to have the opportunity to share your data more widely. You have stormed through our five nerdy questions. Was there anything else you wanted to highlight from this study or the area of research more broadly? I think thinking broadly, there are a lot of reasons why we want to influence physician practice patterns. Certainly, we never want to override the bedside clinician's judgment, but we also want to remain up to date. We want to be good stewards of our resources and at least in America, with healthcare costs rising exponentially, there are opportunities for emergency medicine to participate in alternative payment models or value-based payment models, which will require us to use more evidence and change our practice patterns. So I think evidence-based guidelines like the CMT can be a powerful tool for physicians to perform better in all of these ways without being a mandate. So it can bring evidence to the base bedside while also empowering the individual individual physician to make the right decision, whether that is to not pursue any diagnostic imaging. I think if you have your group's evidence-based guidelines standing behind you, then that can really help you feel empowered not to pursue additional testing. In my other line of work, I'm really interested in how to modify physician behavior on, for example, admission rates. And we know that it's really hard to change physicians' admitting behavior, even though we know that it varies widely just by institution and cultural practice. And I think something like a CMT can help empower physicians to do less or do the right thing without providing a mandate. We know that showing physicians data of what their practice patterns are sometimes isn't enough. This is the largest study of a clinical management tool on spinal epidural abscess specifically, but I think it's also an interesting general study of how guidelines can influence emergency clinicians at a large scale. So we saw that changing testing patterns is possible, but we need to study more to understand whether that translates into better patient outcomes and reduce medical legal risk. Kirsty, I don't know about you. But I think we should have Angela back. I like her philosophy. <laughs> that is my philosophy. <laughs> Welcome. I, well, I'm feeling a lot of simpatico here with regards to, you know, allowing doctors and clinicians to be clinicians, but using the evidence to inform their care, not having it called a rule, but it's a management tool. All of these things, you know, you're hitting all the high notes from my perspective. I don't know how you feel about Kirsty. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, here in the UK, we have an entire assessment program in the NHS that helps people practice evidence-based medicine and reduce, we call it, unwarranted variation in practice. Oh, I haven't heard that term. It's based around the fact that variation in practice is associated with poorer patient outcomes. So... On the same hymn sheet as me with all of this, and thank you and congratulations. Thank you so much. I, I am honored by the invitation. All right, Angela, those were our five nerdy questions, plus a bonus question, just an open-ended question. But I've got one other question for you. It's a surprise question, so I'm putting you on the spot here. 
Do you know Jesse Pines? Who doesn't? Of course. <laughs> I know Jesse. He's my fellowship director. Yeah, he's been on the SGM a couple of times talking about uh, some of the studies he's done with advanced practice providers. So uh, he's a friend of the SGM. So I was just wondering if your paths had crossed. So thank you for answering that. Jesse, if you're listening, you've done good. Wow, Angela, she's a star. Okay, so um, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGM's conclusions. And we agree with the author's conclusions. Uh, Kirsty, can you give us an SGM bottom line? Sure. In this study, implementation of a clinical management tool changed diagnostic processes, but not patient-oriented outcomes. And can you resolve the case that you presented at the start when you were having a meeting and there was a concern, oh, didn't you hear down the street they, they missed a spinal epidural abscess and it was a big, you know, medical legal issue, so. Yeah. You suggest to your group director that the evidence in this field is mixed and before you immediately change policy, you should look at your local data. Yeah, it's always good to consider external validity before applying, you know, something that's been published somewhere else. So how would you apply this clinically then? Well, currently there's no national recommendation for the assessment of potential spinal epidural abscess in the UK. So I'll be taking the information back to my home institution to look at what we do with it locally. And how would you actually have that conversation with your director? I'll say, hey, Dr. Director, there isn't a straightforward solution to this. The most recent evidence suggests that a clinical management tool changes processes, but not outcomes. I think we should find out what our current local practice is first. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was a physician assistant, Dave Michelson. He knew that Rudolf Virchow was expelled from his hospital for his political activism and liberal views, particularly his involvement with the German Revolution. Ooh, so physicians have been politically active for a very long time. Kirsty, what's the question this week? What was the largest settlement in a spinal epidural abscess case in the USA? Yeah, and this gets back to the old millions of dollars question. So if you know the millions of dollar answer, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will not receive millions of dollars. They will receive a cool skeptical prize. But Ken, the cool skeptical prize is worth far more than millions. <laughs> For everything else, there's a cool skeptical prize, yeah. <laughs> Now, Eschemers, it's your turn. What do you think of this episode on a clinical management tool for spinal epidural abscess? Tweet or X your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Angela and her team? Ask them on the SGEM blog, and the best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Well, thanks, Kirsty, for uh, doing another SGEM hot off the press. Thank you for having me. I will... Try and not be in the echo chamber next time I come. Well, I knew we had to do some uh, changing around of times and stuff. You were involved in uh, an important workshop today, so we really appreciate you doing it, even if it does sound like you're coming from a cathedral. Thank you, Angela. I, you know, I think you've got the impression throughout this episode how impressed we are with what you're doing and your approach to research and uh, implementation science. So thank you very much for being our guest. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your skepticism. 
And uh, our final task is to give you, the lead author, a chance to read the SGEM tagline and promote skepticism and critical thinking. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.